This is the day that the Lord has made, and we shall rejoice and be glad in it. I'm Reverend J. Stewart Glover, and you are listening to Faith Talk. On this platform, we aim to draw relevancy from the biblical text while bringing clarity to our own religious experience. Now today, I'm delighted to have Rabbi James Prosnett joining me as a guest today. Rabbi Prosnett, thank you for being here, and how are you today? I am well, and thank you very much for the honor of speaking to you and your listeners. Well, thanks so much for coming. Now, Hanukkah has begun, and I thought it would be a great idea to invite Rabbi Prosnett into the room to share mm-hmm. with our listening community the, the history giving rise to to this Hanukkah celebration, as well as touching on some contemporary concerns and challenges. But before we get there, um, Rabbi Prosnett, would you please tell us a little bit about your spiritual journey and the challenges and delights of being a congregational rabbi for 40 years? Yeah, uh, it's been a long time, um, but um, people who uh, knew me uh, way back when uh, would have been surprised at this uh, career path or this <laughs> calling for me. Um, I was, uh, I, I mean, obviously I grew up in a, a Jewish family, but we were, I guess what you would say, pretty peripheral. I mean, there's an experience, uh, the expression in Judaism about being High Holy Day Jews. Um, I guess that's the equivalent of being Christmas and Easter Christians. Um, Absolutely. Family would uh, would show up like on the uh, Jewish high holy days of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, um, and we would do a few other things during the year. But um, but we were fairly peripheral in in my youth. I, I went to a university at. Um, in Ohio, um, which was actually a Methodist uh, college, um, where there was not a lot of Jewish, there weren't a lot of Jewish students, um, and it was somewhat the absence of um, Jewish students that sort of made me begin to think about, um, you know, who I was and what my roots should be. Uh, I sometimes attribute um, my my spiritual journey to the Methodist minister on campus, who um, who at one point said to me, uh, "Hey, Jim, maybe you should find out a little bit on your own background." Um, I had been dabbling and or I'd been interested in civil rights. I was a liberal Jewish kid from, you know, the suburbs of New York. And and it was a time actually when the black power movement was increasing on campus and otherwise in other places. And and so, um, you know, there was it was that roots time period for the women's movement and the African-American community. And and so this minister took me aside and said, you know, maybe it's time for you to find your own roots. And that was one of those, you know, sort of a. Looking back, aha moments where I began to kind of think about that, and and as I learned more about Judaism and learned more about the opportunities that the rabbinate would hold for me, um, uh, it was sort of a no-brainer to move in that direction. Um, and um, after going to the rabbinic school for five years and um, receiving my ordination, um, I served congregations in Toronto, Canada, um, Manhattan, New York, and then I settled in Connecticut. Uh, I was an associate in those other places and settled in a congregation in, in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and was there as the senior rabbi um, of a large congregation for about 30 years. Amen. Well, you know, I find it um, interesting that you said the minister at the university, he encouraged you to find out more about your own roots. And I find mm-hmm. that amusing as as opposed to him trying to convert you to his faith. Right. Yes. <laughs> and that's something true. I think I, he was very respectful of different people's faiths. Um, uh, uh, and that, and that, that was the direction he sent me. Yes. Well, amen to that. So yep. now, 
Let's talk about the historical events that led to the Hanukkah celebration. Right. What happened? Well, if we go back um, um, to the second century uh, BC, BCE, as I might call it, uh, BC would be a Christological term, BCE before the Common Era, a more uh, generic term. Um, but um, the um, land of uh, Israel then was being occupied by the uh, the Syrian Greeks. Um, the um, after Alexander conquered the known world or the Mediterranean basin and you know established his amazing empire after his death, um, the, um, the 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 world sort of divided between the Syrian Greeks and the Egyptian Greeks, uh, and uh, the Syrians were in control of the area at the time, uh, and the leader was one of these. Um, um, uh, we find this in the Book of Maccabees, um, which I think for Jews and Protestants is part of the apocrypha i think for catholics it's part of the actual bible or the old testament but for jews and and, and protestants we consider it part of the uh, what we would call the apocryphal texts but in the book of maccabees it talks about the oppression that um the antiochus the syrian greek ruler held over the jews of the day um and um you know deprived them of worshiping in the sanctuaries deprived them of circumcising their kids and studying torah um there were a number of Jews, by the way, at that time were very interested in Greek life. I mean, so it was a part of assimilation. I mean, some Jews were very, you know, drawn to um, the Greek world of things with the, you know, arts and festivals and gymnasiums and all sorts of things. So it was a little bit of a, a civil contract a, a, um, conflict among the Jews as well as connected to the outside world. Um, but things got so bad um, that a group of uh, ancient priests who were known as the Maccabees, um, rebelled. Um, and even though it was a small group, they um, fought a guerrilla warfare, actually, one of the first recorded um, guerrilla warfares against um, the larger Greek army at the time. Um, and they were amazingly successful. Um, and so they were able to, you know, fight off this, you know, larger power. And, and we had this celebration of the few versus the many. And um, it was almost like a, a David and Goliath type of story that lived on um, in this uh, Maccabee text. Um, after they, they defeated the Greeks, um, uh, they went back to the temple um, where the sacrificial worship was taking place or had been denied them for many, many years with the Greek control. Um, and they purified the temple. They rededicated the temple. Um, and then the legend um, was told about a single cruise of oil uh, that was part of the eternal flame. Um, and that uh, cruise of oil was only supposed to last, um, you know, uh, one uh, one night, but uh, miraculously it burned for eight. I mean, that's probably, a, I mean, I, I don't want to be a spoiler here for uh, any of the Jew, any Jews or others who might be listening. That's probably a legend that came about much later. I mean, the miracle to me was the fact that these groups, uh, this small group of uh, priests wanted to you know, rekindle the flame of Jewish tradition after it had been sort of eclipsed by the 
power of the uh, the Syrian Greek armies and the Syrian Greek leadership of the time. Um, but later on, they told um, this sort of legend of the little jar of oil. Um, but the historical piece of it goes back and, and really was a place where Jewish autonomy was claimed, reclaimed um, in the land and lasted a, for another few hundred years until the Romans came along. Uh, and that was sort of the end of that uh, Jewish life at the time um, in the ancient land of Israel. Well, you know, you, you said this in, in, in very clear terms, <clears throat> but I don't want people to think that this um, Greek occupation or was a light um, effort. <laughs> right. It was very violent and, yeah. and it was ugly. I mean, they, yes, they, they brought things into the temple. I understand right. the gymnasiums and and yep. forbidden dietary, you know, swine yep. on yeah, what was pigs the in the temple. Yeah, and and there's a horrible story in in Second Maccabees about a um, seven brothers and their mother, yeah. who was right. arrested. And this story really um, Anna and her seven sons. Yeah, yeah, it brings out the the ugliness of it all. I mean, the sons were tortured one by one. In, in front of the mother, I mean, they're talking about the first one, I believe, was put in a frying pan. <laughs> and, and you know, so the, the aggression, the idea was to wipe out, for me, as I'm reading these stories, the idea was to wipe out any form of Judaism from the face of the earth. Thank you for making me pause and, and for, for fulfilling in the gap there. Uh, I did try. I didn't try to necessarily sanitize it, but I, but but I didn't quite go into some of the really. You're actually right. Some of the real oppression that took place at that time. And so, um, it, it was it was a it was a horrible period of time. And you know, for some reason, um, some Christian theologies teach that. There was a years of silence in between the testaments, and this actually happened. I believe this would have happened in between those so-called silent years. Uh-huh, interesting. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, this is, I mean, you know, yeah, I think you're probably right. This was... Uh, because pretty much the the Old Testament had been sort of sealed by this time. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe there were a few books that were still not part of what we would call the canon. Um, um, but um, but this happened at, at, at a you know, very. Um, you're right in that sort of intertestimony, intertestamental period. Mm -hmm. um, so um, when somebody uses the term, the or the words, the phrase, the Hellenization of the Jew, mm -hmm. what would that mean to right. you? Well, it would mean that there, there was a, as I was sort of saying, that the Jews who were very attracted to the the, the Greek life. I mean, uh, it was probably had an appeal to them, to some of them. And some of them may have been actually, you know, part of the more affluent and more um, upper crust part of uh, uh, Jewish society of the day. Um, they were very drawn to all the all the things that um, the Greek world was presenting to them. Um, and um, and this group of priests who became known as the Maccabees, you know, were the purists. They were the ones who kind of uh, maintained the, the flame of tradition at a time when other people were kind of being lured in, away from their Jewish roots. Mm -hmm. I love that term, the flame of tradition. Yeah. And by the way, I mean, there are, you know, I mean, as we move the story to contemporary times, 
I mean, there is a discussion to be made. I mean, I'm not comparing um, the world we live in now to the horrific times of uh, Antiochus and the, uh, the the Syrian Greek control, but there is that lure of secularism into our world these days that is a challenge to both the, the Jewish community and the Christian community, to be sure. Absolutely, and and we, we're going to talk about that in a moment. But let's let's talk about the central traditions, the foods, and the activities yep. that occur during this um, Hanukkah. Well, first of all, let's get back to well, yeah, let's get to the lights, the candles. Yeah. So um, so when um, so the idea being that then when that sort of miracle story was emerged, and I guess um, actually one of my thinking about that is you know why did this legend of the triumph of a little jar of oil sort of prevail in terms of I mean if you were to ask most Jews these days why do we celebrate Hanukkah for eight nights, um, most of them would sort of say because the oil in that one cruise lasted for eight days um, uh, miraculously. Um, um, there was probably other explanations for it, but um, but it's sort of a nice message that we increase the light. And so therefore, the, the essence of Hanukkah these days, from a spiritual point of view, is to light a candelabra called the menorah. Um, and each night we you know, have one sort of lighting candle, um, and then we uh, and then we add one candle per night. Actually, um, uh, Reverend, there's an interesting little um, discussion that took place among the rabbis a couple thousand years ago, which was how do you light a Hanukkah menorah? How do you light this Hanukkah? Um, and one school of thought said you should start with eight nights, eight, eight candles burning, and sort of like count down eight, seven, six, five, you know, till the um, till there was only one light left. And another school of thought said start with one candle um, and add an additional candle every night for the eight nights. Um, if you've ever seen a menorah lit, you know which side won. <clears throat> it was the adding light that won. And I think there's a message, too. We always want to try to increase the light in our communities. Um, and so um, we, we add a candle each night. Um, and so tonight, um, I, well, I'm not sure when people will be listening to this, um, but, um, but so each night we add a, a particular um, candle to it. Um, so it's a lovely festival. Um, uh, I mean, I'll talk maybe a little bit later about the fact that it's not one of the peak festivals in the Jewish year. So sometimes I, you know, I'm critical of people who make Hanukkah into like the Jewish Christmas or something along those lines because it's it's still a minor holiday, minor festival. Um, but I think um, in in at, at one period of time, people wanted to see God in the miracle. Um, so they, you know, what, it didn't want to just be a military victory of um, the Maccabees. Um, they needed to see some kind of divine hand in it. So um, that story of uh, the triumph of light um, and and God's role in, in in enabling that cruise of oil to last all the time sort of became a marker of the tradition. Um, uh, because of the oil, <laughs> um, we have special foods that are cooked in oil. Um, so potato latkes, uh, potato pancakes are one of the foods that we eat. Um, uh, jelly donuts are one of the foods that we eat. Um, in in uh, Where Jews lived in Poland, uh, a lot of pancakes, a lot of potatoes. Uh, when Jews lived in the Middle East and other places like that, um, you know, more uh, more jelly donuts and things of that kind. Um, but it's a, it's a lovely festival where people gather, you know, with their families 
alleys and and they light the lights and um and um uh, and uh, you know sing some you know songs um the songs of hanukkah are not as special or memorable as the christmas carols of the season but we try to do our best and 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 basically i i think for both jews and christians at this time of year what we've got is a winter solstice festival um, where we sort of acknowledge that at this darkest time of year how wonderful it is to light candles and to spread the light and one of the messages i guess of a candle is as long as my candle burns i can light you know hundreds of other candles mm-hmm. um, even if it's a little tiny stub i can still light other candles so it's a nice thing for you know people who are aging too that even you know when your candle is kind of like getting smaller and smaller it's still the light is just as powerful as it was uh, when it was standing up tall um so there are a lot of nice little messages that come with the holiday amen now the um the games yeah yeah um, there's, a, there's one in particular called a dreidel right um a dreidel is um <laughs> a little top um it probably uh, in its origins was somewhat of a gambling game mm-hmm. uh, people anteed up and then if you if you fell on a certain letter you got the pot if you fell on another you got the half of the pot if you fell on another you had to put into the pot um so um uh it's it's a nice little tradition probably has i haven't heard of really any theological or religious meaning to it um but it's just another one of those customs of the season actually on the gradle are four hebrew letters which stand for if you are here in where i'm living you know if you're in the states it says neskadol hayasham a great miracle happened there mm-hmm. but if you happen to be in the holy land you can buy a great great that says neskadol hayapo a great miracle happened here mm-hmm. um so um those of us who live he, uh in the states sort of reflect a great miracle happened there and of course the miracle was um the triumph of this you know the of a faith over darkness of light over darkness so over time now i would i would imagine and i might be wrong i would imagine that in the beginning or when when the celebration of hanukkah was in its early stages of development that there was probably some teaching around the events that led to the celebration is that something Correct. that's continued today well um <laughs> um here we're going to get into our secularization conversation i think mm-hmm. um um because um i think some of that teaching i mean yes the answer to your question is yes um it should be it should be centerpiece um but unfortunately in many homes um it's the lighting of the menorah and it's you know can we get to the presents now right um uh, <laughs> can i have another donut can i have another donut can i have to get the presents um you know i think um you know uh, uh I, this is an example of um of the merging of uh, or or the taking over I mean, the christmas season uh, has sort of gotten uh, connected to the jewish season of hanukkah right the practice and here we're talking right. about the, the material the material culture that i think we're all facing right. um you know i, I mean 
Hanukkah is a, as I said earlier, is a bit of a minor Jewish holiday. It's a lovely holiday. If we were to talk to a, if, if I, if my grandfather was around and I said, you know, Grandpa, how were, how would, how do they celebrate Hanukkah in your day? He would probably say, oh, we lit a menorah. You know, we had some potato pancakes. You know, maybe I got some chocolate, uh, you know, as a gift from, you know, my grandfather, uh, and that was it. Um, mm-hmm. These days, um, if I go into the religious school at my synagogue and I ask children, what's your favorite holiday? Mm-hmm. Most of them will say Hanukkah. Right. And the reason for that, of course, is that Jewish families have gotten used to giving presents on this particular day. And why do we give presents on this particular day, Jay? Because... Our Christian friends give presents on Christmas, and Jewish parents didn't want their children to feel badly and say, oh, oh, can't we, uh, mom and dad, I think I'd rather be Christmas than Hanukkah, (laughs) because my friends are getting presents. Um, So here we're dealing with a little bit of secularization and material culture um, and the influences. So we've, we've kind of, you know, so it's the, it's the, you know, put the, Put the light back in Hanukkah, you know, put the Christ back in Christmas. Sometimes we squander our sacred events and we've turned them into something pretty secular. Well, I noticed that around this time of year, Christmas, uh, you know, when I was a little boy, I used to write down a couple of things on a piece of paper that I wanted. And now technology has changed, so my grandson sends me links to Amazon (laughs) 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 of what he wants. <laughs> Nothing wrong with gift giving. Oh no! Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to say there's anything wrong with gift giving. Right. But I think we would probably all agree that sometimes, you know, some families take this, you know, to the extreme. Absolutely. And you know, on the, um, you know, we talked a little bit about mentioning the challenges of being religious leaders at a time of increased secularization. Um, I think that there is a notable trend towards the abandonment of religion and religious practices. As a matter of fact, this word tradition is often frowned upon by younger generations and some older folk. Uh, And now, of course, there are some traditional practices that should be revisited. Um, But however, but we must understand that it is through our tradition that the language of our faith is preserved from generation to generation. So I love the the phrase you use, the flame of tradition, because I find Mm -hmm. that some people are looking for something new um, and to discard tradition and treat it as though it's a it's a bad word. Yep. Yep. Um, No, I couldn't I couldn't agree more with that. Um, And sometimes, you know, when I look at, um, you know, our year, some people's faith, some people's um, year are marked by like, you know, I mean, here I'm reflecting on my my interest in sports, but you know, you're you're dealing with you know, we go from the World Series to the uh, Super Bowl to the you know NCAA college tournament, uh, you know something else. I mean, people's world revolves around sports, um, whereas if we if we were enable people for worlds to revolve around some of these wonderful you know faith traditions, um, there'd be so many more opportunities for us to you know gather as families. Um, together as you know with uh, with other people who who care about some of the same values and messages that we care about I mean you know if we marked our year with you know 
f harvest festivals and dark time of year festivals and springtime festivals that all faith traditions have, I think we would really, you know, be be able to mark that year in a much more sacred formulation and and understand, you know, God's role in in, in so much of our lives and so much of our, you know, not only the the life passage but also the seasonal flow. And I think doing that would would also. Um stand against those who are saying that some traditional practices are not necessary. You have mm -hmm. some that argue that the scriptural stories are not true and therefore why teach them? And and what what would you say to that? The people who argue well, well that, that's not true. Yeah. Well, well, here, I mean, here's the classic example of I'm, what I was suggesting before is I'm not sure if that little jar of oil miracle story is true. Okay, I mean, and by the way, there are plenty of Jews who believe it's true, and far be it for me to come along, you know, as a more modern rabbi and say it's not. Um, but, but to me, that's not the question we should be asking. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't be asking, is it true? We should be asking, what are the truths of the story? You know, sometimes when I when I teach my my students, you know, I sort of say to them, you know, okay, I'm I'm not gonna. I mean, some of the, I, I have a hard time with some miracles too. You know, I'm not sure my rational brain could ever say that snakes ever talked, you know, to Adam and Eve. You know, I'm not. Uh, you know, my faith is strong, but but at the same time, I question certain things from the biblical tradition. But the, but the focus isn't is this true? Did it happen? The question is, what are the truths? of this particular story and what a wonderful truth it is that some group of jews in ancient days wanted to repurify the sacred temple that had been desecrated and they found one little jar of oil and they decided you know what let's just go for it we don't know how long this thing's going to last but we're going we're gonna to commit ourselves and we're going to light it and see how long it possibly lasts until we have a chance to make some more. Um, and, you know, miracle of miracles, that little, that little effort to, to, to light the spark, you know, to kindle the flame um, that they chose to do, you know, speaks of volumes in terms of uh, the darkness that sometimes we find in our world today. So, so, what, so was it true? Did it happen? I don't care. But what are the truths? Wow. What an amazing story that is. Amen. Amen. And and so also today we're we're finding that as young people and, and some intellectuals, religious intellectuals try to um, throw away tradition and, and discount the, the truth of even the truth, the underlying truths in these stories. Um, what does that leave us with? That leaves us with a life that mm -hmm. is devoid of faith. Mm -hmm. where faith is no longer needed. And where, where does that leave you? That leaves yeah. you where um, trying to live a life that's pleasing to God takes a, a back seat to consumerism and, and your political ideology and, and sports fanaticism or whatever. But, yeah. but I can't imagine uh, me trying to live my life outside of being in, in a right relationship with God. I mean, I mean, someone once said, "Faith is the willingness to believe despite uncertainty." Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I'm, you know, like you, I'm willing to believe despite the uncertainties. Well, you know, I think that um, one of the things I really like to do is to have these conversations because I think that we can um, dismantle some of the harmful stereotypes that are being um, suggested and acted on. And, and to leading to hate language and, and acts of hate. I think by having these kind of conversations, we can 
kind of um, explore the commonalities and embrace the commonalities instead of um, demonizing our differences. Now, um, you know, I don't feel the need. Amen to that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I don't feel the need to try to convert you from being mm-hmm. a a faithful Jewish person to to embracing what I believe. I think we can learn from each other, and and mm-hmm. and um, the the goal of interfaith dialogue is not to create a new religion where everybody you know come one come all. No, it's good to have your your faith mm-hmm. tradition, right? But what yep. we can do is embrace the full humanity of the religious other, the ethnic other, and celebrate the presence of God in the life of this other person as opposed to, again, as opposed to demonizing our differences. Now, so in today's contemporary, uh, and I guess this is nothing new, but there's an uptick in the um, anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. There's an uptick there. And, you know, I tell you, I don't understand the, um, I don't understand the origins of it. Yeah, I mean, we're going to, I mean, I, I, it's sad, actually, that there has been, and I have to agree with you, um, and, 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 I mean, I think anti-Semitism is one of those things that's, you know, the Jews realize has always been here. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it's sort of like, I mean, someone once likened it to a virus, <laughs> you know, it, it, it kind of never completely goes away. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it lies dormant. Um, and um, and then uh, all of a sudden something happens within our society and it sort of like comes back again. Um, so I think um, that's a little bit of what's happened lately. Um, uh, I know this is a religiously focused podcast, so I don't want to get political um, or overly political with you. But I think, you know, some of the restraints of the last, you know, four years or so, you know, have taken off some of the guide rails. I mean, there have always been anti-Semites. There have always been people who have thought Jews had more power than I think Jews know we have. Um, they think, um, and there have been, but but in recent years, um, um, some of these fringe elements have been made more, you know, uh, acceptable um, to say things that are, are hurtful and, and, and problematic. And, and I think that's been unleashed in our society. And we, and we see the lingering input um, put of that. Because um, I think, you know, some in our world think that, um, you know, what did they say in Charlottesville? Uh, you know, Jews will not replace us. You know what did that mean? That meant that um, you know we you know are the are, are the, the white privilege of certain people. I mean you know whether it's African Americans or, or Jews or immigrants or whatever you know shouldn't replace you know who's who in American society. You know American society. So so I, I don't want to drift too far into the politics, but but I think that sometimes it has to be called out. And the challenge for the Jewish community, of course, is you can't ignore it, um, but you also so you have to call it out um, but at the same time when you call it out you sometimes run the risk of um, you know making other people you know, I'm, I mean I've been thinking a little bit of the Kanye West and you know Kyrie Irving stuff that's come up in recent days I mean how do we handle that should we you know yeah probably the best way to handle it is through education well here's the, the thing work. here's the yeah. thing I don't think that hate heals through furthering hate language and, and I, th- I think that the the throwing out of uh, or the the these harmful stereotypes that we're hearing, you know, whether or not it's um, 
you know, black people are, are criminals or, or Mexicans coming across the border are criminals and rapists or mm-hmm. all Jews are rich um, Hollywood mm-hmm. producers yep. <laughs> or, or yep. la- landlords. When you he- when a person hears that language, they should they should leave. <laughs> they should <laughs> right. they should close yeah. their they should close their should... Go ahead. Go ahead. They should I, close I was gonna say they should try to get Right, and they should try to get to know somebody who's, and they should try to get to know somebody in the other, in the in, in that other category, uh, because when you get to know somebody in that other category and build relationships, like I'm blessed to say you and I have done over the late years, yeah. um, you know, all of a sudden, you know, those stereotypical views kind of begin to melt away, you know, melt away significantly. Um, uh, we sometimes live in our own little bubbles, and if we ever got out of our bubbles to meet somebody who's not like us. I think we would find in most instances that the same quests and the same desires are part of, you know, part of everyone, part of all. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, I don't want to go too far into this, but um, it's a dreadful cancer that's in our society today. And, um, you know, if you if you have a bad relationship with somebody or a few people, you can't paint all the right. people with that yeah. with that by that experience you know if i if i was to get if i was to get mugged by a chinese person i can't mm-hmm. say that all chinese people are muggers right. and, 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 yeah. and it's it's it boils down to it's that simple but it's a condition of the heart that 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 feels the need to um to demonize someone else in order to make yourself feel a little bit better about yourself who you are and it's a sad situation. That's a, that's a little statement about human nature, too, which is problematic, but I think you're right. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that we've kind of covered it, and I want to thank, yeah. thank you for coming on. This, this, um, this, this initiative is going to be up to, by tonight. Okay. Up on oh. Apple, iTunes, and iHeartRadio, and... Um, some of the other Amazon, Audible, and all of those podcast platforms. It's going to be out there. And I'll send, well, you, the, I'll send you the link. Thank you. I appreciate it. And it's so nice to have a chance to talk to you at, uh, at, and, to, and through you to your, you know, to your listeners and, and, and whether, and I get to wish people a very Merry Christmas and uh, Happy Hanukkah and a, and a season and a dark season uh, of light and renewal. That's really the, the primary wish at this winter solstice time of year. Well, you've been listening to Faith Talk, and, and I certainly thank you for being part of our listening community. I want to thank the Reverend, uh, the uh, Rabbi Jim Prosnick, for coming in and, and contributing so richly to this conversation. Um, and I'm sure that my prayer is that I, I hope somebody from somewhere around the world would hear something that's been said that encourages hope and strength for today, hope for a brighter tomorrow. Rabbi, thank you for coming on. May God continue to bless you and prosper you, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.